The world is in a climate crisis and all industries must do their part to reach zero emissions. Maritime trade is critical to today's society, but is also responsible for 2.8% of all greenhouse gases. A future where global trade reaches zero is possible, but how do we actually get there? I'm Laura Jacobson, Zero North's Chief Purpose Activist and an expert in sustainable shipping. In Navigating Zero, I'm sitting down with thought leaders to explore the inner workings of global trade, its massive impact on our society, and the obstacles it faces navigating its way to zero. In this first episode, I want to take you through some of the foundational concepts and facets of maritime trade. The objective of this show is to reveal the complexities of this industry, explore what actions are being taken, and inspire new thoughts on how we reach zero emissions. To do this, I think we really need to start at the beginning. To help me do this, I'm sitting down with Richard Mead, Editor-in-Chief of Lloyd's List. We will discuss how he defines global trade and what aspects he thinks are most important to helping us move forward. Richard is an editorial business leader and award-winning journalist. In his written work and as host of the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast, he's regularly engaged in the conversations around sustainability and shipping, offering up a realistic view of how the industry is doing on that front. So let's start at the beginning with Richard's definition of global trade. Global trade is raw supply and demand. It's, It's countries trading with countries. And of course, the vast majority of that is carried by sea. And uh, seaborne trade is about just over 12 billion tonnes annually right now. Um, it actually dropped a little bit last year, about by about 0.4%. And that was because trade is affected by things. It can be everything from small events like... Uh, ships doing ill-advised U-turns in canals, to more macro events like the weaker global economic growth that we've been experiencing and high inflation that impacts consumer spending. Obvious things like disruption caused by the war in Ukraine, uh, COVID policies and containment measures affecting the economic and trade performance of countries like China particularly has had an impact. So all of these things, the, the minutiae of national and international and global macroeconomic policy, everything is is wrapped up in what we look at as global trade. It's a completely dynamic industry with so many facets to it. Can you pinpoint some of the complexities that are really causing challenges? Well, it is interconnected. I think that's the thing that you need to remember when you're talking about global trade is that everything is going to have a knock-on effect in terms of how you are looking at what is happening. Every year, Lloyd's List does a list of the, the 100 most influential people in shipping. And it's an interesting, very subjective exercise in terms of who is doing what. And it, it is taken slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it is meant to be a snapshot of how the movement of global trade is influenced by individuals. Um, But if you look at the trend that we've been mapping over the last uh, 15 odd years that we've been doing this list, actually, the most influential people uh, on trade are not ship owners. They are not the people who are putting the things on the ships. They are the politicians now. Realistically, the people that are affecting shipping most is actually the people affecting China's economic policy. Just in pure economic terms, that's what drives things. So It can be everything from big macro politics 
to the smaller micro factors of, of physical disruptions. But it is impossible to sort of pinpoint a singular thing that is going to affect global trade on an annual basis. It's true that shipping is at the mercy of forces larger than itself, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that it can do to move towards zero. Indeed, regulations and regulators are a key factor in creating change in our industry. The International Maritime Organization, or IMO, which has a history stretching back to 1948, is one such entity. Today, the IMO is a coalition of 175 countries who, in theory, create regulations to make shipping greener and fairer. However, the progress that they create is often seen as too slow, and the IMO has come under fire for their lack of clarity. The ability of the IMO to produce you know, schizophrenic statements and slightly maddening, opaque nuances that really don't make much sense from the outside is, is legendary. In support of the IMO, I would say that it has genuinely made progress where other industries haven't. And no, it is not acceptable in terms of the speed, the pace and the scope. But actually, it's got a lot further and a lot faster than most people assumed it would do by this point. I think what's very interesting, a lot of the industry, I think, was ready to blame the IMO for not moving quickly enough. And what happened earlier this year in their MEPC 80 meeting, that's the Marine Environment Protection Committee, this is the main body that decides and sets the agenda for decarbonisation in shipping, they actually got closer to agreeing a 1.5 Paris alignment than most people assumed they would. And that's interesting because... Actually, what they've now done is set a, a bar higher than most people expected there to be. And now they are backtracking on previous commitments uh, and saying, well, actually, I don't think we can meet these, these targets, uh, particularly the nearer ones. And the key here, not to get too technical, is that we're not just talking about an arbitrary 2050 goal to hit net zero. The really interesting bit for me is actually the waypoints they've set for 2030 and 2040, because that actually requires real action to be taken now. And that's scaring a lot of people in shipping. So do you think that the maritime industry is not moving quick enough? And why is it not moving quite quick enough? No, we are clearly not moving fast enough. But I think we are finally starting to have a series of conversations that are at least more in the right ballpark of, of where we need to be discussing. I think the problem is that we have up until fairly recently viewed this as a shipping problem to be resolved by shipping people. And the suggestion that you just go out and build some zero carbon ships and hope that the fuel is going to come your way has been proven to be somewhat naive and a massive fallacy. There is no silver bullet. It is a series of changes that need to happen across an energy transition. And shipping has always looked internally at things they can do, ships they can buy, routes they can change, speed they can adapt to. That's the things in their toolbox. This is not about that. Uh, I have absolutely no concerns about the ability of the industry to find the technology it needs to get zero carbon fueled ships on the water. Effectively, they already exist. And in the cases where they don't, we know that the engines are imminent within the next few months or years. That's not the issue. The issue is the complexities of, A, pricing carbon into globalization, which is a very expensive business and politically very, very difficult because it has nothing to do with shipping and everything to do with the economics of macro global climate change policies and who pays for what. 
I think the problem the shipping industry has is that it has very little agency in so many of these discussions. And that's because it is really, up until now, hidden in opaque corners of uh, global economics. It is deliberately decided to sort of exit itself from various international discussions. On the rare occasion that it did talk to politicians, it was generally in a transport department. And what we need now is a much more holistic and integrated discussion where the industry is looking at itself within a value chain, a global integrated value chain that has to go through a series of changes. And I think that is now becoming apparent. You're talking a little bit about the outside factors, but if we also look inside the industry, there are things that are stopping it from moving forward. For example, the complexities in contracts, for example, and then the not aligned incentives for demurge and sale fast weight, all these different things that give a monetary value to the non-transparency. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the changes inside the industry and who are the players that need to make leaps of faith. I think there's been a discussion in the industry up until this point where I feel that some people are waiting for things to happen to them. And they are waiting for governments and their customers to essentially eradicate all of the risk, which is disingenuous at best, because the industry has never operated in anything other than a risky environment. Shipping generally is quite comfortable with risk, and yet they are using this lack of certainty over the regulatory direction and the price of carbon to effectively say, well, we can't move because we don't know with any certainty about what's going to happen. And I, I find that to be you know, a spurious argument at best from an industry that is, in most cases, unwilling to move unless somebody else is paying for it. We talk about shipping as if it is a homogenous industry. It really isn't. The editorial team at Lloyd's List tend to sort of refer to the industry as divided between the good, the bad, and the compliant, and you know, the top. <laughs> you see a lot of interesting moves. And I think even people who aren't involved in shipping have heard about the fact that Maersk is a big company and they are investing in methanol and doing interesting things. And we've seen lots of stories about wind ships and sails being put on uh, ships again after uh, many centuries. And I, I think you might view these things being invested in by companies like Maersk and Cargill and big names that people have heard of and think, well, this is an industry that's actually moving forward. The reality is that's not the picture across the industry. It is a series of very fragmented sectors that have very little to do with each other. And what works, for example, in Cargill's uh, installation of wind sails on its dry bulk carriers won't work on tankers. It won't work on container ships. And it certainly won't work on, on some of the more specialized ships that actually carry the majority of trade around smaller ports. There's a scale issue there. But it's also the fact that realistically, most of shipping will not move until they are forced to. And I say that knowing that some will accuse me of being a little bit mean about ship owners, but that, that is a reality of how the industry works. A company is not going to go above and beyond its nearest competitors if it cannot charge a premium to do so. And at the moment, it is unable to do so. And that's the compliant bit in the middle. So essentially, we're waiting for regulation to push them rather than the good actions of those at the top to try and create a gravitational pull around changes and investment going above and beyond the call of duty of what they have to do. And then, of course, there's the bad bit at the bottom. And frankly, these are the uh, the laggards and uh, pirates that, frankly, are never going to do anything, even if you are going to try and force them. They will basically view most regulations as an exercise in how can I circumvent them as quickly as possible. We can't talk about shipping as a singular thing when we're talking about it in these terms. 
At Zero North, we're very lucky to work with a lot of first movers, people and organizations that want a zero carbon future. And you're going to meet a few of them throughout this series. These first movers are bringing the industry together, opening up new conversations that perhaps were previously more difficult to have. Richard and I both agree that we are currently navigating through the green transition. I do genuinely believe that we are on the cusp of a major transition in the industry. And I think the question mark is whether the first movers are going to have enough of a gravitational pull to take the rest of the industry with them. Programs like the Chicago Charter, the Poseidon Principles. These are voluntary programs within the industry that effectively try and initially measure, set out some transparency, and then move the industry forward in a way that is going to allow people to invest with, if not certainty, then certainly the group mentality that we can actually change the industry if there is a certain level of creativity and collaboration at the top end of the industry. And to that extent, the banks effectively agreeing that at a certain point, financing is going to stop going to the places that is not prepared to move quickly enough. Cargo is not going to go to some of the ship owners who are not offering the right levels of efficiency in ships. So I think they are changing. Are they changing quickly enough? And are they going to be able to change others? I don't know yet. I think what we will see over the coming weeks are a series of progress reports. And I've had a draft look at uh, some of the conclusions there. And I think it's a mixed bag. We've got progress in terms of Technology, certainly, that's coming through loud and clear. We're seeing an influx of uh, dual-fueled ships being ordered and the engines that will allow us to go to zero-carbon ships, that's coming. Is the demand signals to the energy companies sufficient for them to get beyond uh, FID, first investment decisions, on projects that will produce those fuels? No, not yet. It's not. Even with big tax breaks like the IRA in the US and the various zero carbon programs within the EU, there is still not enough of an incentive to bridge that pricing gap between fossil fuels and the much more expensive zero carbon fuels that are coming down the pipeline. Are they technically possible? Yes, of course. Um, So to answer the question, yes, I do think collaboration is possible. And yes, I do think it is moving the industry forward, but it's moving the whole industry. And I think a really good example of that is we have a situation where we can have a test for the first time in the tanker sector. Only this week we've had news that Urinav, which was previously the largest listed tanker company in the world, is going to see a parting of the ways of the two largest shareholders. Now, that's significant in this context because... You have a very old school approach from one shareholder, John Fredrickson, who's a major ship owner that some people may have heard of. And he wants to create a company with scale. And he wants to do so in a way that is, yes, going to produce efficiencies, uh, but it's going to make a lot of money on a tanker market that's looking at a cyclical opportunity. On the other side, you have a family behind the other shareholding that want to diversify and invest in future fuel technologies, specifically around ammonia and hydrogen. And they know full well that they're not going to be able to make as much money as quickly, but they want to do that differently and they are trying to get shareholder buy-in. And you're going to have two listed companies now offering two very different scenarios of the future of shipping. What's going to be very interesting is whether the industry is able to convince shareholders to come in and invest in that positive decarbonisation future, or they're going to take the money and 
operate in a, an increasingly fragmented, increasingly uh, difficult oil environment that is, frankly, very good news for tankers. At the end of the day, in the world of business, the shareholders hold the power. If you're a bold leader and able to convince them of your vision, then that goes a long way towards building a company that can do business differently. Our industry is one of the oldest and has its good, bad, and ugly sides. Today, there are some darker things which are emerging. And in order to overcome them, I suggest we bring them out into the open so we can find solutions. So I asked Richard what he thinks are the most controversial topics in shipping today. It's an interesting one because I think if you'd asked me that question even 12 months ago, you'd probably get a very different answer because as I've already alluded to, there, there has always been a slightly shady aspect at the bottom of the industry and we're well versed in understanding that there are dubious operators out there who are willing to run bad old rust bucket ships into areas where there is probably not the oversight that one might expect in other areas. And yes, they will operate out of slightly uh, opaque offshore centers and, uh, and do dodgy things. But to be fair, that has always been the minority. There has always been an underbelly. And I rather suspect that that is the case in, in a lot of globalized sectors. But what we've seen over the last certainly 12 to 18 months on steroids is, is a version of what's been going on a little bit longer in terms of the fragmentation of the fleet. Now, regardless of what you think about the IMO, we have in this industry a lowest common denominator standard of safety. And we have a rules-based order that, while it doesn't always work, it certainly sets a base level of expectations in terms of what that ship is and the standards that are applied to it. And what we have seen increasingly now as a result of economic weaponization of sanctions in order to deal with an increasingly disintegrating rules-based order in terms of the financial and global political systems is that actually it doesn't work as well as it used to. Just when we need more multilateralism, we have less of it to deal with some of these things. We have a fragmenting political oversight and specifically, and this is a term that I'm sure most people have heard of, the, the rise of the dark fleet, these ships that have effectively sprung up in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in order to carry ships, uh, carry cargoes on ships that are no longer able to trade into sanctioned countries. That has effectively created a situation where there is an increasing amount of ships that are operating outside of the norms of long-established safety standards is essentially my main concern. Now, I'm choosing my words carefully because I think, you know, these are not international sanctions. These are not internationally accepted measures. They are economic weapons put out by the US, EU, UK, and a few other states in order to try and deal with Russia at an economic and geopolitical level. But Russia is free to trade with other states who have not sanctioned it. And the, the, the morality of that situation is neither here nor there when you were talking about safety standards. The concern that we have in terms of safety of global trade, and let's not forget, you know, we've got 100,000 odd large ships floating around the ocean. The point at which they are not looked after properly becomes an environmental and safety issue for, you know, not just the people on board the ships, but the people in the coastal communities where should they go down and start spilling their guts, there is going to be serious problems. If we do not have those basic standards, those basic expectations of inspections and classification and insurance, 
that is a problem. And it is increasingly a large problem because the number of tankers that are part of the so-called shadow fleet, the dark fleet, however you want to describe it, is around 535 ships today. Now, these are ships with an average age of around 23 years. Older ships are more dangerous and need more looking after. But just to the point that they are not being looked at, they are operating without insurance. It's not just a question of ships not being able to call in certain ports. It's about ships having access to technology that allows them to repair engines or to fix things when they are called into ports and they have a port state inspection and they are found to be wanting in terms of a safety appliance. They're not able to get hold of those things now because of sanctions. So we are seeing a sort of series of problems and they are going to become more and more serious the longer this goes on. It's problematic at a safety level. It's problematic at a, a trade level. It just introduces that much more complexity and uncertainty into an industry that, frankly, is not set up to deal with this. And this is the main issue. When we talk about sanctions, I think we focus on the financial aspects of it and the, you know, the political bits. If we are looking at, say, the finance sector and the banks, they tooled up over a decade ago. A series of very, very expensive fines were meted out to the finance sector by the US, by various governments, and they had to increase their compliance departments tenfold. If you look at the actual sort of how much investment goes into various banks these days, a large chunk of it goes into, into compliance. The same with the insurance sector. The shipping industry, not so much. That big fragmented middle bit that we have talked about so often in this podcast already, you know, generally speaking, these are not large companies. These are companies where you are lucky if you have a general counsel or access to an external counsel. Generally speaking, it's a slightly overworked chief financial officer that is having to deal with some of these things, and they are not expert in sanctions. The increasing complexity of what the industry is dealing with due to this fragmentation and increase and massive influx of very, very complex and dynamic sanctions that are being leveled against the industry in order to say what it can and can't do in increasingly vague ways, that is a very difficult position for the industry to find itself in at this stage. In many ways, it's not a surprise that shipping is facing multifaceted challenges when it comes to sustainability. Technology has the ability to step in and support this complicated transition. Rich data can, for example, crunch the pre-voyage cost of carbon emissions for regional regulations and offer best outcome recommendations. Or it can help charterers choose the right vessel for a voyage and avoid heavy fuel consumption costs. In instances like these, technology can save hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars. Pressure from regulators such as the IMO and the UN, the awareness that arose of global trade's fragile state during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the dynamic geopolitical situation have resulted in more public and political visibility for our sector. Indeed, during the pandemic, Richard spent much of his time being interviewed by politicians and journalists who were shocked at how vulnerable shipping was. Richard says that this increased visibility of shipping is a double-edged sword for our industry. If we don't do something, we are that much more liable to be lambasted by the politicians and the regulators and the general public. I think it's good that we have the visibility, but we have to actually act on that now. So there are changes afoot, and I think the industry at certain levels is stepping up. But back to my original point, I don't think enough of the industry is responding. And the danger is that actually we are seen as a singular industry with good reason by the general public. And just because one company is visible in doing something and the rest of them aren't, it's very difficult to explain that. And we've 
made a step change in terms of our ability to have the political conversation at some levels. But I think that public dialogue, that's something that we have to change as an industry as well and explain the significance of shipping and maritime trade to a more general public. Because that is what is going to shift the dial in terms of public understanding about why things would potentially cost more. But you can actually increase the transparency of your goods. I fundamentally believe that the main positive drivers that could actually shift the dial for shipping in terms of uh, sustainability and decarbonisation is not going to come from within the shipping industry at all. It's going to come from their customers' customers. And it's going to come from the consumers and the financiers and the big public institutions who are committing to Scope 3 1.5 aligned goals. The customers who are demanding that their clothes come with some uh, accountability, that their products have clear lines of transparency in terms of where they are coming from, in terms of ESG standards. That is what is going to change the minds of product retailers. That is what is going to change the mind of the cargo owners. And that is ultimately what is going to force the industry at a public interest level to change its ways. Richard, I agree with you. Societal pressure has a major part to play here as well. What makes you hopeful for our path towards getting to zero? I am hopeful because I fundamentally believe it has to happen. At a certain level, there is a a series of tipping points that the industry has to go through to understand the changes. And I think it is going to be painful. It's not going to be a linear process. Uh, I don't think many of the business models and companies that are currently in existence today are going to survive this transition. But what will come out of this change is going to be a better more efficient, more transparent, more responsible industry that is more accountable to the public at large and actually increases the understanding of people who consume the fruits of globalization in terms of where things come from. And I think that is only a good thing. I think if we increase the visibility of the industry and the transparency of what we are doing, it becomes incumbent on all of us to change what we are demanding. At a certain level, I'm not saying the industry is blameless, but globalization has been allowed to happen in the shadows cheaply. And I think it's really important that we actually start pricing in the reliance of supply chain resilience, the cost of carbon, the cost of ESG goals at every level. And it will be more expensive and it will be difficult. And it will mean that the current requirements of shipping will have to change. But ultimately, that's to the good of everybody. Shipping is fragmented and complicated. If we're going to get to zero, there are many complex problems that we need to find the solutions for, and fast. My key takeaways from my conversation with Richard are, there are many macro external factors that are weighing on our ability to reach zero. However, there are well-intentioned first movers in our industry who are starting to change business as usual practices. Will every single enterprise survive the transition to a new kind of shipping? Most likely not. In our industry, we have the good, the bad, and the compliant. In this reality, there is a major question mark over how we get total alignment. Just like in the environment at large, we need to make big changes now. And it seems impossible when we're not all moving towards the same goal. Our industry is under a microscope. Many factors in the last five years have made the public and politicians actually think about what we do and how we do it. We now have external pressures to do better in a way that we never have before. 
If you're going to take anything away from this podcast, remember this, we need to understand the macro context, but also realize that we can make a change in the micro one. The conversation is changing and the bold are leading the way. Now that our industry is more visible, we are under more scrutiny than ever. We need to do better. These three things will enable the green transition and help us to face the ever-changing challenges in this exciting and dynamic industry. Thank you so much to Richard Mead for joining me today. And thank you for listening to Navigating Zero, Global Trade's powerful wave of change. If this conversation has inspired you, then please follow us on your podcast app of choice for more fascinating discussions on how we reach zero.